Can we maintain civil liberties during a pandemic? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Kara Zwiebel. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Kara Zwiebel. Kara is the director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She has been with CCLA and other roles since 2010, and prior to that, practiced in commercial litigation, public law, and health law at a national law firm. Kara graduated from McGill University in 2001 with an honors degree in political science and received her LLB from Osgood Hall Law School in 2004. She articled as a law clerk to the Honorable Justice Ian Binney at the Supreme Court of Canada before being called to the Ontario Bar in 2005. Kara also received her Master of Laws degree from New York University as an Arthur T. Vanderbilt Scholar. Kara, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, Kara, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation and answers take us. Our question today is, can we maintain civil liberties in a pandemic? And I figured it would be best to start at the general and then narrow down from there. So for the first part of our conversation, let me just say, I think it's safe to say that most understand the pandemic is a serious deal, regardless of how we go on to deal with it. And of course, I think many more understand and agree that to some degree, society needs to make adjustments. But many are, of course, are concerned about civil liberties along the way. Um, Some say people bringing up civil liberties concerns at this time are either paranoid or looking too much into it. But let let me just ask you straight up, should people be concerned uh, now about their civil liberties? I absolutely think that people should be concerned about their civil liberties now. Um, And I don't I don't disagree with anything that you said in terms of, you know, how um, how serious this situation is from a public health perspective and that we are going to have to make adjustments to um, to our expectations and to how we're living for hopefully a, a, a short period of time, although it's looking like it may be a, a long period of time. Um, and it's already, you know, it's already been quite a while. So I do think we need to be thinking about civil liberties because um, we are facing the restrictions on rights and liberties that we've really never faced before. Mm-hmm. We've ne- never really had situations where the government was trying to tell you, you know, how many people you could have in your house or uh, where they were trying to tell you how many people you could invite to your wedding or how many people could be at a funeral. Um, and these are really personal things that matter to people and that do affect um, and are direct impacts on our our liberties, right? Our, our basic very basic liberty to be left alone by the government. So I think even though we're, we're we understand that there's a need to adjust and that we understand that um, that there are going to be restrictions, I think we have to be asking questions about whether these restrictions are justified, whether they're necessary, whether they're reasonable, uh, and we also need to be asking questions about when they will end. Um, right. You know, re- recognizing that governments don't have a crystal ball, don't know what the future is going to look like in terms of the pandemic, don't know if we're going to, you know, have a vaccine. And if we do, if it's going to be effective and when that might happen. But, but because those are unknowns, I think that's one of the, you know, one of the reasons why we do need to be asking questions. If it's, it's well and good to say, you know, we're going to have to deal with some temporary restrictions on our liberties. But if, um, if we don't even have a metric to know when we're going to be able to loosen those restrictions, then I, I think we do need to hold governments to a higher standard and ask them to, you know, to to be a bit more rigorous when they're justifying things. And I'm, I actually haven't noted to, to get through, get into a few specific restrictions, things like travel bans and, and masks and things like that. But but before we get into like those specific examples, um, I'd like to continue on with something that you basically just brought up there. At a high level, when we're dealing with I was going to say sort of the situation, but really the sort of a new normal really at this point. Um, what kind of things do you think people should be be on the lookout for when the government comes to the table and basically says, OK, like, you know, we're in an extreme situation. We need to do X, Y and Z. And for the sake of discussion, let's just, as I said, at the very beginning of the conversation, definitely grant that this isn't an extreme situation and things need to be done. But when someone comes to the table with a measure or a, a policy or, or a proposition, whatever it may be, what kind of things should the regular person be looking out for in, in terms 
terms of a discussion on civil liberties. It sounds like you started with one saying that a time value on some of this stuff uh, is a good idea. What other, <laughs> if you, you can expand on that, of course, if you'd like, but, but beyond that, what other kinds of stuff should we be looking out for? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we should be um, looking at, at attempts or steps taken by governments that are um, going to deviate fundamentally from the way in which we normally think a democracy works, um, which means that there is, you know, a, a group of elected legislators that are responsible for making decisions. Um, we have, you know, we do have emergency laws in Canada that have been invoked and that allow the executive branch of government to to do extraordinary things and to exercise extraordinary powers. And I think because of the the nature of this particular emergency, which um, you know, like you said, is becoming the new normal and, and is sort of becoming a status quo. Um, we can't allow, uh, you know, a single premier or a single minister to make huge decisions like this. We do need there to be democratic debate. And so I, I think, you know, that's one thing that's very important um, that we should be looking out for. I think we also um, need to be careful about what we're empowering police officers to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this is a public health issue. Right. Um, the the issue has to do with you know keeping people from either you know getting infected or people keeping the most vulnerable people who are most likely to get seriously ill or or die. Or we're trying to protect those people, um, and. and you know, in some cases, I think um, different jurisdictions across the country have taken the approach that, um, you know, we need to get law enforcement out there and um, they need to start enforcing these these rules, which are not about public order. They are about public health. And, um, and I think there's a really different approach that, you know, many public health um, officials take, which is to, you know, understand where people are. Um, I, I've spoken to some public health experts who talk about meeting people where they are. And, um, you know, and we're at this point, some of the rules that we put in place are are really significant, you know, behavior modification. Um, they're, they're attempts at sort of mass behavior modification. Right. And that might be um, necessary, it might be appropriate, but the question is: um, Do do we want police officers to be involved in in trying to enforce that, or is there a better way to to try and persuade people that it's the right thing to do? Um, because I think, even though you know, I think the vast majority of Canadians accept the seriousness of the situation and are um, are taking precautions. Um, there are certainly some people who don't take the threat seriously for sure who, yeah. who you know who don't believe it um and the question is is using you know our our police officers to try and enforce the rules going to do anything to help that population and i'm really not convinced that it's going to i, I think that um it sets up a dynamic where people who are already resistant to the rules are going to dig in um rather than comply and that there are, you know, better ways to to try and persuade people that this is the right thing to do. And we also have to recognize that as much as we want everyone to comply with the rules, and as much as, um, you know, we talk about how it's important that, that everyone do this, it doesn't matter if you're doing the right thing, it's, it, it, it's very important that, you know, we're all doing the right thing. Um, the reality is that we don't require 100% compliance with these rules um, to, to try and keep things under control. We are not in a situation where we're going to eliminate this virus from the country or the globe. Um, and so accepting that it's going to be with us for a while, we should be able to accept that there are going to be some people who are going to break the rules. Um, I think they're a minority of people. And I, I don't think we should be you know, building these infrastructures and these rules uh, and enforcement mechanisms up around the minority of people who are resistant to to change. Right. I think that's a really good point. And even before we get to the 
the the point where people are, as you said, potentially breaking the rules, and we might have to accept that you're gonna, you know, in a, in a, you know, just random example, like in a little town of a hundred people, perhaps like two don't b- believe anything that's going on, and they don't care about the rules. Even before you see them breaking rules or or not caring about face masks or whatever the case may be, I think it's also fair to say that we we also have to accept that there are going to be some people along the way um, in terms of compliance, not not just not following the rules, but people that are gonna question the rules and also you know go a little counter what the mainstream messaging is in, in at this given time too I, I think i've noticed a lot of that too is that um although of course this is definitely a situation where in order for us to get rid of the virus flatten the curve etc most people need to be on the same page about what needs to be done but it seemed that when there are people providing either uh counterpoints or challenging whatever the the main line is on, on this issue most people don't even want to have that conversation like it's a non-starter and i think again before those people even start breaking the rules it seems like a lot of conversations also been shut down that area too and i think that's something that there at least seems to me needs to be a bit of an allowance for for us to actually have a proper forum on this issue rather than just a, a very vertically integrated system of the government says something the police go enforce it and we know how that kind of thing turns out right yeah no i agree i mean i think that it has been a problem that there's been a, a real um sort of public shaming of people who are questioning uh, some of these um you know, some of these measures or questioning their motives, um, you know, calling them selfish. And um, I think that it, it really, um, there are, not to say that there aren't people, but of course, there are people who are selfish. Of course, there are people who are questioning mm-hmm, these things for, sure. for, their, yeah, yeah. for their own reasons. But I think there are many people who are asking questions because um, they have concerns about what, you know, what this means for our society long term. They have concerns about um, how quickly we've really, um, you know, we've evolved, uh, the, how quickly the rules have evolved so that things that were previously sort of considered, um, well, here, maybe I can give a, an example. Um, and if this is too too specific and maybe, um, maybe even a bit um, personal, um, but but th- these are conversations that I've been having with, you know, members of my family. Um, we have children who are in school in Toronto, in the Toronto District School Board. All, all kids, regardless of age, are uh, required to wear masks in, in the classroom for the day. Um, now, I recall, you know, at some period of time ago that the recommendation around masks was that they should be worn when physical distancing is not possible. Um, but very quickly, we've kind of moved to a situation where everyone is required to wear masks. Everyone is also required to, to be physically distant. And, um, and just recently, actually, we got something from the school board that said that at pick up and drop off times for, for schools, um, parents should be wearing masks outdoors um and that you know that rule is in place i think to make people comfortable and that has its value um i think there are people who feel uncomfortable even if you're outdoors and even if you're separated you know if you're distant from people uh who feel uncomfortable seeing people not wearing masks but i'm not sure that the you know the medical evidence supports the need for all of these these measures. If I go to pick up my child at, at school for you know f- five minutes outside, is is it really necessary that I'm wearing a mask? Now, you know, the counter to that is, is it really a big deal to wear a mask? And I would say, in most cases, no, it's not. Right. Um, but I think asking that question, you know, asking but but why, it, it does have some value because these are. Um, you know, these are messages that were, first of all, that we're sending to our kids about um, safety and security and what it means to be near people um, and whether they should be scared of being near people. And I, I worry about that. Um, but I think, I think also, you know, we do have to look to the future um, and wonder, you know, it, it might be safer for us to wear masks all the time. I mean, we have flu season. We, you know, there are other diseases that can be transmitted through through droplets. So, you know, maybe we should just be wearing masks all the time. And and I, I think it's you know, I think it's worth probing what's required some of these measures to be put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, without without suggesting that this isn't a serious threat or that, you know, um, we don't we don't necessarily have to take these measures now. I, I still think it's worth asking those questions and we we should be encouraging those discussions and, and sort of not impugning the motives of people who um you know who just wanna really you know, question if this is the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. And and even sort of stepping aside from the idea of like the public discussion, discussion, if you will, <laughs> and, and sort of into the idea of holding the government accountable and the discussion of civil liberties and things like that and keeping that in check. Like, I think most of us should recall if we put our minds to it. And I, and I definitely understand and sympathize with most people. I feel like the last couple months may have just been a blur of all of different sorts of <laughs> messaging hitting you from different places and what to do, what not to do. But I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like a pretty, you know, hard and fast line for, for uh, many in the government was for a variety of different reasons that like, you know, masks aren't the thing we should be doing. You should all be, you know, distancing. We're going to go into lockdown. Some so as went so far as to start discussing why the masks wouldn't be effective. And now we're hearing that they're the most effective thing. And again, uh, for my personal uh, belief and what I've studied into this, of course, masks are effective. So I'm not saying they're not. <laughs> What I am saying, though, is that when it comes to this idea, we're talking about civil liberties and the government and and keeping them in check and keeping an eye on those sorts of things, it becomes a situation where we can't just shut down people's ability and uh, we can't just start shaming people that want to question what's being said and how far certain measures are going. Because if we if that conversation's a non-starter, then we miss out on things like maybe contradictory messaging or if something's going too far or perhaps even something's not being done enough. Like th- there's all these discussions that need to be, I think, an open forum. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you know, I, I think. It, it is, um, like you said, that, I mean, the messaging around masks has definitely changed. And, um, I, and you know, what we've been told about their sort of effectiveness and what we've been hearing about their effectiveness, um, you know, it still doesn't necessarily mean that all of the places and all of the circumstances in which we're requiring them are really justified. It seems like there's been this sort of approach where we say it's easier just to just to say, basically, always do it. Um, and, and it's partly, I think, because, you know, in some cases, governments don't trust people to do the right thing or to understand um, the, the message. And, and it's understandable if people are confused because there's, you know, there's been a lot of shift in in the message and, and the science is evolving. So, you know, we have to accept that there's there's some unknowns, um, but it's it's certainly worth, you know, having these discussions and um, uh, and I think giving people the benefit of the doubt that they're not they're not questioning things because they want to put people at risk or because they don't care about people's lives. Um, they they are thinking about you know other implications. And actually, let, let's shift gears to another example, because I think we actually sort of segue nicely into masks there. But I, but I want to talk a bit about uh, tr- travel bans and freedom of movement right now. So I think uh, for obvious reasons, many of them, just the reasons we've been discussing already, uh, governments are restricting travel. Um, and uh, at the time of this recording, you and I are recording this together, we're sort of seem to be at the beginning of a, of a second wave. You know, we've already experienced some travel restrictions loosening. Now they might go back up again. So I think this is rather timely. But however, like anything we've been talking about, whether it's masks, travel bans, whatever, and in this case, travel bans, we can all imagine un- unreasonable measures that could take place, things going too far. But before I ask a couple more questions about that, let, let me just start it with asking, how would you grade Canada's score on its dealing with those kinds of restrictions overall so far from, from your perspective? Because obviously, we're again, we've been talking about sort of the balance of, of people's freedom, but also safety. These are extraordinary times we grant this stuff. So on, on net, how do you think things have been going? So I think, I guess there's there's a distinction to be made between um, things sort of at the national level and then things at the provincial and territorial mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. So, um, y- you know, I certainly um, understand, and I think given how we've seen things develop in the United States, um, I'd be hard pressed to, you know, say um, we shouldn't be res- restricting travel ac- across that border. But I do know that, you um, that those restrictions on, you know, people um, crossing the U.S.-Canadian border, um, they had real um, impacts on on families that were separated, and um, and there are concerns about, you know, the constitutional rights that Canadian citizens have to enter the country and to, um, you know, so so Canadians who sort of didn't make it back in time and then decided they wanted to come back or were in a position to be able to come back. Um, some of them did have 
have trouble doing that. And I think that that is, um, is concerning because uh, being a citizen of a country is supposed to mean that it's, it's always your home. And, um, and so it's, it's troubling if there's um, a circumstance in which you can't return to your home. Um, the, I have to say, I think on the, so I, I but I, I, I think generally, you know, um, our national restrictions on travel have, have been, um, for the most part, appropriate um, or, or reasonable, I guess. I can't really say appropriate, but um, I think they stand up to, to that reasonableness test, sort of to the, you know, proportionality question. Um, on the provincial territorial front, I, I've been really surprised by um, the reaction of some provinces and territories that have taken steps to restrict, um, you know, Canadian citizens and permanent residents from other parts of the country from, from entering their, their province, um, because we've never really had, in terms of the movement of people, we've never really had an idea of provincial or territorial borders in right. Canada. We, you know, we don't have checkpoints. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's trade issues and things like that that happen, but, um, freedom of movement isn't something that we've really questioned before. And, um, you know, again, I think um, in many cases, provinces and, and territories, and it's, I mean, the, the provinces that have been most uh, restrictive of, um, you know, people coming into the province and territory have been the Atlantic provinces and, um, and then the territories. And um, they are all in, situations that um i guess there are there are factors for all of them that um help to to justify that to a certain extent so um in the territories for example help you know healthcare resources are very limited and they're very remote and um there is a real risk of overwhelming the system with even a small number of cases. So, you know, I can appreciate that steps have been taken. And, and although to a lesser extent, I think um, some of Atlantic Canada has, has some of those same challenges. Um, but I think there's been a, a, a bit of an arbitrary approach to some of this. And, um, you know, in that um, provinces will say that, you know, that they've restricted travel except for, sort of essential workers, but the, the definition of an essential worker is something that is fairly subjective. And, um, and, and it gets to, I think, a, um, a situation where really what's happening is that governments are favoring um, economic issues over social and cultural issues. So it's more important that, um, you know, we get the resources out of the ground and send people down to the mine than it is that we get family together and allow them to grieve the loss of a loved one. Um, and I, I, I do think that governments have been um, overly restrictive in some cases with, with these um, interprovincial travel restrictions, um, you know, especially because there are so many other measures in place um, to try and protect people. So, um, we at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association brought a challenge to um, to Newfoundland's travel ban. And um, what what Newfoundland did at the outset of the pandemic was say that anyone entering the province had to self isolate for fourteen days. And um, and then at some point, about two months in, they decided that um, that wasn't enough, and they would need to take more restrictive steps. So. Um, they basically said there are residents are allowed to enter the province. Um, people coming into to work who are essential workers are allowed in, and then other people are not permitted in. Uh, they can apply for an exemption, but an exemption won't be given just you know for any reason. And that um, that rule was put in place um, even though you know people were willing to come in and self isolate for two weeks. Um, there was no real evidence that the self-isolation requirement was was failing. There was a lot of fear that it wasn't going to work. There was a lot of fear that people were breaking it. There were a lot of rumors and reports that people were, you know, not abiding by that um, by that requirement. But there wasn't actually any evidence that that was happening. Right. Um, and 
And in fact, you know, the, the cases that the few cases that Newfoundland has seen since they've put the these rules into effect have been people who have exemptions who are allowed to travel into the province uh, and they come and travel into the province and they self-isolate and and the virus doesn't spread beyond them. Um, so I think there are questions to ask about, you know, why a government would go from a measure that still restricts, you know, people's mobility rights, asking someone to self-isolate for 14 days when they enter a province is still a restriction on people's um, mobility rights, but it's a lesser restriction than saying you can't come in at all. And, and for me, the question is, why do you move to a greater restriction um, without evidence that you need to? Um, and I guess, you know, you could apply that same question to many of, um, of the measures. Why, um, why do we keep taking more restrictive measures without necessarily the evidence that they're necessary? Um, and I, you know, I can, I guess, predict what, um, what the answer would be. Um, and that's that, that there's this idea in public health of the precautionary principle that we don't need to wait until, you know, we have absolute certainty about the risk of something to act because if we do it may be too late. And I, I, I don't dispute the importance of that principle. Um, but I think it should and does have limits. And, um, and I think we need to be a bit rigorous in asking governments to, um, to justify the steps that they're taking. And in many cases, um, the justification is little more than better safe than sorry. And for me, from a constitutional law perspective, that's not enough. Yeah. And I actually did read in, in an interview you did with the, uh, the uh, Halifax Examiner, you said that the problem is when governments start making decisions based on fear. And I think the way you used that word there was very good because you didn't mean, for instance, you and I's fear that we get sick, for instance, and spread to our family. That's a reasonable fear. We don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's it, when you use that word to me in context, you, you were basically saying, from what I understood, is like the, this sort of, as you said, sensationalist, pearl-clutching sort of one group of people gets worried about some guy in, a mi- in the minority situation sort of thing, spreading the virus, coughing on tomatoes in, in the supermarket. Yes. <laughs> When it goes to this kind of level, that's the kind of thing you were saying. That's not what we should be public basing our public discourse around, for one thing. Uh, but another thing as well, you said governments should not be making decisions based on that. And I think that was a really good point. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also think governments shouldn't shouldn't be making decisions based on fear of liability. Um, and I think that that's a lot of what's happening as well, um, not just governments, but businesses. There are a lot of things that are being done, um, I think. Um, and I, as a lawyer, I, I you know, I guess I take responsibility for saying this, but um, because of lawyers, right there, there's a lot of risk management happening where, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're doing screening every day. We're signing things that we've screened each other, that we've tested this, that we've done that. And some of that is to, you know, I think to, to sort of paper things over so that we can say, if something goes wrong, look, we did everything we possibly could have. You know, we we weren't negligent here. We we tried. We did more than was you know was necessary. Um, and I I worry a little bit about about that as well. I just want to quickly touch on um, more specifically limits on gatherings uh, in Ontario. At least there's there's indoor and outdoor limits on gatherings. And again, at the time of this recording, I think just a week or so ago uh, that they just adjusted them in Ontario. So before, I think you were allowed up to a certain number. Now it's like a 10 indoor, 25 outdoor, something like that. So again, I'm kind of asking the same question. It's a bit of a template, but I think it's, it's an interesting topic unto itself. Firstly, do you agree here that this is yet again a place where some rules are acceptable, but on the other hand, is there a place place in this area where it can go too far? Like what's your high level takeaway on, on the sort of gathering limits discussion? Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I think that um, it, it's certainly reasonable given what we know to limit, you know, um, large gatherings. I think there are questions about um, where we've decided to place the regulations. And, um, and it's interesting to me that um, you know, all of those limits on indoor gatherings don't apply to restaurants or bars or grocery stores or um, really any businesses um, that, you know, are responsible for, for helping keep our economy going. And that is um, obviously an important thing to, to, to keep in mind and a, an important thing to keep, um, you know, for governments to be paying attention to and, and prioritizing. But again, 
it's not obvious to me that um, that we're, you know, we're targeting the regulation in the place where it's most um, no, most needed or where it will be most beneficial. So, you know, I know there are some cases that we've heard about where um, where people have, you know, gotten sick from from these sort of social gatherings in right. people's homes. Um, I'm not sure if that's the big driver of infection um, because I know that at least in Ontario, um, there's a lot of um, cases where we, we don't know the source. And so, you know, if the source is these other settings that are not being, um, you know, restricted now, like, like restaurants and things like that, um, is, is it justified to, you know, reach into people's homes and say, you know, look at Thanksgiving, you're going to have to, you know, make your list of your 10 favorite relatives because you can't have any more, uh, yeah. more than that in your house. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think, you know, I think there are questions about priorities, but, um, and again, I think the government is, um, you know, trying to get ahead of, of things and, um, and trying to avoid shutting down the economy again and shutting down schools again, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of trying to avoid doing that. Um, I think everyone is in a situation where, you know, this is new and we don't really know what will work. Um, and uh, to a certain extent, I, I kind of wish, um, I kind of wish we'd hear governments say that a little bit more. I, I think that they're um, afraid to acknowledge that and um and i understand i'm sure as a you know as a leader um in government you want to try and assure uh your constituents that um that you have things well in hand but um i guess given how how everyone i think seems to 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 feel and how you know dark some of these days that we're having really are mm -hmm. um sometimes it would be helpful for the government to recognize like we're doing our best you know we we don't have all the answers and um and we're going to make mistakes because i i think i mean that's inevitable um you know there's going to be at some point a chance to look back at what was done and we're going to be in a better position to assess where things were right and where things were wrong but we can't do that sort of in the moment. And, um, and I guess I wouldn't, um, I might feel, you know, a bit, a bit more comforted if the government acknowledged a little bit of that. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take a break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Kara Zwiebel today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Chris Rondolo, Lawrence Kong, and Liam O'Brien. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and as always, remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Kara Zwiebel today. So Kara, I think the first part of our conversation was excellent. I think we definitely kind of started from the general and worked our way down to some specific examples. I'd like to talk about a few, a few more different examples, or perhaps I should say some of the trickier areas of these sorts of discussions. Um, so so let, let's start with something right off the bat here that, that is, I think, a little tri tricky. So it's it's already tough enough during these extraordinary times to talk about adult individuals, right? And we're sort of where the sphere and the circle, if you will, of their rights and their liberties meets others and, and how much freedom they have within that circle, for instance. I think we would all agree just even without a pandemic that I don't have a right to just go into someone's house and scream at them and call that free speech. That sort of thing is what I'm getting at. And especially in this sort of situation here, I think many of us would agree that, you know, a lot of us don't have the right to go, to go and do things that are very sloppy uh, and, and very uh, careless in terms of infecting others. So that's already difficult enough to talk about, but I think it's even more difficult when we involve people who aren't the age of majority in our scenarios. Specifically, I'm talking about like children. Um, and in a time like this, what kind of balance do you think, and here's where I'm going with this, must be st struck between like respecting, for instance, like the parents' rights to raise children the way they want, make decisions on their behalf, 
but also understand that they may potentially be putting them into a danger situation, right? I think like we this the pandemics and things like that aren't the only sort of issues we have these sort of discussions on when it comes to civil liberties. You know, there's things like religious exceptions, blood transfusions. Like, but now we're talking about the pandemic kind of thing. Um, what kind of role do you see as government needing to play in, in this sort of situation, right? Obviously, they're in many cases, they're acting on behalf of the children, but could that also go too far in times like this too when we, we, we talk about public policy and measures and things like that, infringing on, on the rights of parents to do what they see fit? Yeah, so, so I mean, that's a really hard question. And I think, you know, the the sort of family unit is, is probably the kind of... Um, or, or not, you know, not, and family unit defined very broadly. So, right, you know, right. the relationships between um, adults and the children that they are responsible for caring for, um, that's a, a relationship where, um, you know, for the most part, we are um, reluctant to, to, to want to see government, you know, getting involved. It's, um, it's a, an area where we feel that there should be, you know, quite a bit of autonomy. But of course, the government has a role in in stepping up to protect children who are in danger. Um, I think when it comes to to issues around the pandemic, um, that idea of children being in danger, you know, um, has to be understood in. Um, I get. I guess I would call it a narrow way because I, you know, I think that the fact that a, you know a parent might be more lax about, um, uh, you know, about hand washing or mask wearing or um, or even you know being with other people um, should obviously not be enough to say that a child is in danger and um, you know and that the state has a, an obligation to step in. I think that um, we need to to understand um, these things as um, as an area of, of some autonomy. Um, I mean, the government is, is obviously regulating a lot of our public spaces and those regulations apply to the children that are in those public spaces. So um, they, they can accomplish some of that, you know, protective function there. Um, the, the other place though, where this comes up has to do with children who may already be under the the care of the state, you know, children who are in children's aid, um, within the children's aid systems. And, um, and that might be because um, there's being, you know, an investigation is being done in relation to whether they were, were in danger when they were with their parents or guardians, um, or where there's already been a, a decision made by a court that, um, they have been in danger and where they've been removed from parental custody. Um, and in either case, I think um, one of the things that we've become aware of at the, at the CCLA that's been happening during, um, during the pandemic um, is that children's aid societies have in some cases been exercising their, um, their authority in ways that are really problematic. Um, you know, um, so in the, the very sort of early days, um, uh, we we were hearing about children's aid societies canceling all in-person visits between um, you know parents and and children who are in care. So even if you're a child that's been found to be in need of protection, um, very often there will be orders in place so that you can still see your parents um, or your guardians, and so that um, you know maybe those visits are supervised, maybe they're not. But um, there are there are different regimes that that govern these things and in some cases children's aid societies were just unilaterally saying no more in-person visits um, and so we actually became involved in a case um, and intervened in a case where um, a child was um, in a kin placement so this means that the children's aid society is doing an investigation the child hasn't been found to be in need of protection but they're doing an investigation and while they're doing that investigation the child is staying with uh, in this case, the grandparents. And the parents had the right to, to, to visit. Those visits were supervised. Um, and, you know, the pandemic hit and um, the parents said, you know, these are the precautions we're taking so that we, um, we make sure we're not, you know, posing a risk when we come into the, the grandparents' home to see uh, the child. But the Children's Aid Society just suspended um, 
in-person visits. And um, and the courts did get involved. Um, the, the first court agreed with the Children's Aid Society and, um, and said the parents could have virtual visits. Now, in that particular case, the child was just a few months old. So you can imagine how helpful virtual visits are uh, yeah. with, with, a, with a six-month-old. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that, that the family appealed that decision. And that is, um, I mean, it's hard as a parent to imagine something worse than being told that you cannot see your child. Um, but that is what the, the Children's Aid Society did in this case and what the court ag- agreed with. And so when the parents um, appealed that decision, we we intervened to make some arguments about that because these are um, situations where I, I do think actually that the government, the, the Children's Aid Societies operate sort of um, independently from government, but there, there are obviously regulations that they are um, required to, to comply with. And I think um, there should have been more direction from governments about the importance of maintaining um, these family bonds and that uh, restricting in-person access to, to kids, um, you know, was a, a really extraordinary step that should only be justified in cases where um, there is a, a real risk, you know, where the child is um, very medically vulnerable or um, where there isn't the ability to take take these precautions. Um, and it's interesting also the way the courts treated um, the rights of kids who were in care differently from the rights of kids whose um, whose parents were divorced. And so, mm. you know, some of those issues got, got before the courts because of custody arrangements. Right. And for the most part, courts said, look, the custody arrangement that held before um, is going to continue to hold now. It doesn't matter if you know, the parents disagree about the the right level of, of sort of safety and protection in relation to COVID. These are these are rights. And um, that wasn't the way things worked in the child protection sphere. So, you know, that that's that's concerning, I think, and a place where governments probably could be doing quite a bit more to um, to emphasize the importance of kids uh, having an opportunity to be with their parents. I think that's actually another great example. And it seems to me so far in our conversation um, that, you know, the, the general thread that you're pulling through a lot of what we're talking about here. And I, of course, I shouldn't be surprised someone that's working in the, the field of law and liberties is that, again, something might sound great either on the news or a measure the government's coming out with might sound good. We might even agree on, on the surface level that such and such measure is a good idea. But as always, the, the devil's in the details, right? Like these little gray areas, it sounds to me at least, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that's what you're saying is that even if one would think a measure on the high level is reasonable, what we really have to be looking through is, is the gray areas, the people that fall through the cracks, how this is affecting people's lives sort of on the margins at times, I think is, is of most concern when it comes to these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. I think in many cases, um, you know, sh- sure, there was going to be, we weren't going to have, um, you know, supervised access sites that where you often have, you know, kids and families meeting together and and there's, there may be bigger groups that that was going to have to change. But um, what do you replace it with? And and going back to the the travel issue that we were talking about before, you know, I think in many cases the governments were basically trying to say, look, we we don't want people to just come and vacation, right? Like we're we're trying to keep those people out. Um, if it's not necessary for you to come here, then then we're we're trying to keep you out. But in fact, when you look at how the the laws and rules got applied, right? Um, you, you know, it it affected many many more than that. It affected um, in our case in in Newfoundland, a woman who was trying to uh, to get to Newfoundland to. Um, grieve with her family after her mother passed away. And so um, there are real human implications for for how these rules are uh, put into place and how they're enforced. And, and shifting gears a little bit, something you and I were quickly chatting about over the break and something that when you mentioned it, I, I like the way you put it, which is that right now, of course, we're seeing a lot of situations where the government is, is making it clear that, that they have a lot to say about um, the things we are responsible for as, as sort of average citizens, right? Like, you know, we're responsible for each other's safety. We're responsible to wear a mask. You know, uh, perhaps businesses are now being shouldered with responsibilities. You said trying to mitigate liability and things like that. You know, if I'm a business owner, for instance, and I create an environment where COVID could spread, you know, that's my responsibility kind of thing. But, but as you said to me on the break, and this is what I want to shift to there it seems that 
there is an interesting hole in a lot of public discourse right now about um, talking about the people that the government and the state is actually directly responsible for. So one of the things you mentioned was, for instance, prisons and, and COVID. Like, that's a huge issue. Um, and of course, uh, the CCLA has raised concerns about the living conditions of prisons during this pandemic. Would you like to elaborate on that a little bit and, and tell us why like everyone should be concerned about this issue and why it's so important? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's partly that, you know, that issue of um the government is giving us the responsibility to, to do the right thing and to, to take care of one another. Um, but the government is responsible for taking care of some people who are, you know, who are in their custody. Um, and those are um, inmates in, uh, in institutions, uh, correctional institutions. So at the federal level, um, and I mean, this is true probably in at the federal and in every provincial and territorial jurisdiction, uh, prisons are typically um, places where, at the best of times, um, conditions are crowded, um, uh, infections can spread easily. Um, there isn't really the ability to, um, you know, to to be physically distant. Um, there's these are congregate, you know, congregate settings, um, and and so in those places that the government is is responsible for. Um, we feel that in many cases they haven't done enough to um, to try and protect those populations. And um, I mean, I think we should care about that um, because we're human beings. And even if you are a you know a, a real law and order type and you've done the crime, do the time, um, we we shouldn't we shouldn't be putting fellow human beings in situations where they can become ill and where they're more at risk of becoming seriously ill and dying, um, obviously. Um, but then the, the other thing is that um, these, you know, these people have ties to the community. They have, um, there are correctional officers that go into the correctional institutions and leave the correctional institutions and go into, uh, into the community every day. So the conditions that exist in prisons will eventually make their way out into, into the world. And, um, uh, you know, we think government should be proactive um, in, um, first of all, releasing people who don't need to be in prison, um, uh, releasing people who, um, who are in jail and are legally innocent. So people who have, um, are awaiting trial and are being detained. um, If, if there are, you know, absent really compelling public safety reasons to keep a person locked up, those people should not be in these settings so that we can decrease the the overall number of people who are there. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and there are various other steps the government could take. So we, um, we are litigating that issue and we're um, right now we've, we've um, uh, started proceedings to to get an injunction to try and get the federal government to take proactive measures in anticipation of kind of the the second wave of things and and try and improve conditions in prisons and decrease the population. And I think another topic in the same vein is is one that I think of course affects all cities and anywhere people live, but but is of course probably exacerbated in more denser urban centers. Is of course we have um, many cities have have a certain segment of the population that that happens to be homeless, and again this is an area where the state's usually heavily involved in normal times, right? Either they're, whether it's to be subsidizing or running shelters, whatever the case may be. And again, I think as you were you and I were chatting on the break, this is another area where the government is actually in some cases partially or fully responsible for. There are people under the state's care or at least under their supervision and i i think guess here's another area i have haven't personally heard too much in public discourse about that i think again it is very important yeah for sure i mean we have um you know the in in toronto we've initiated uh, litigation with a with a coalition uh, of partners and I, I should have said that the, the prison litigation is also with a coalition of of other community groups um but uh with with toronto's homeless population um you know, we we got the city to sort of agree uh, on the steps that they needed to take to to make sure that shelters were safer places for uh, people who don't have homes and uh, you know people who, who when all of us were complaining about um, being stuck at home, people who didn't have the luxury of of that complaint. Right. Um, and um, the the city has has been sort of periodically updating. Um, 
us and the court about about how they're doing and fulfilling those steps um, and they you know they feel that they've fulfilled their obligations and and needless to say um we and our coalition partners disagree so that that issue will be going um, to court I think actually next week here in in Toronto, um, and and it's again it's a it's a place where you know the government I think needs to take more responsibility if um, if they're going to match sort of the 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 rhetoric and the emphasis that we've heard from them about the steps we need to take um, they need to to show that they are doing everything they can to protect the populations that they're responsible for. Right. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, as I, and I think you put it very nicely when you said that a lot of people, of course, one of their major complaints was, uh, you know, the fact that they were sort of, especially at the beginning of this process, forced to stay at home or whatever. But I think it's important for all of us to be mindful that in the society we live in, that sometimes if, if you're, you know, forced to stay at home and watch Netflix for an extended period of time, sometimes you might be on the slightly better end of the deal, relatively speaking. So I think it, those are two excellent examples as to why it's very important. We're very mindful of what's going on around us beyond the average person, again, being, being forced to stay at home in lockdown, of course, but they're that's not downplaying anything they have to deal with. But again, it's very important to be mindful of everything else. I want to shift a little bit to something else here too. And this is sort of more probing you for more of your your thoughts on a high level of, you know, the way Canadians handle things and and uh, and, and the way we go about thinking about things sometimes as a culture. Like I want to start with other people for a second because many other people have the perception that Canadians will accept more infringements on certain liberties and rights than, for instance, Americans. Like this is kind of like a stereotype. Um, you know, a lot of topics in this area come up, you know, speech, for example, as is, is often uh, an instance pointed to where we have restrictions on speech, other places don't as much as specifically the United States. So some people take that as if Canadians are more lax in, in this area, or at least don't, don't care about it to some degree. But but I, I want to hear your thoughts on that, like, and you're in this, this field, and you work every day in, in civil liberties. So do you think that Canadians, in your experience, culturally are less concerned about their civil liberties than they should be when it comes to to certain issues in general, first of all, but also during this time? Or do you more feel like sometimes it's a lack of information? Like, like obviously, the CCLA exists to not only f- fight for people and, and get in front of courts and, and do the sort of legal legwork, but there's also an awareness element to it. So um, in, in a perfect world, that that wouldn't be needed, right? So so, mm-hmm. so, so really, what, what's your takeaway there? Is it, is it more people that need to be informed? Do people just not I think that there's a, the comparison to the United States can be a bit, um, you know, it can warp the perspective a bit because we, we do see sort of a very vocal group of people resisting restrictions to liberties there. And and that's either because there, there is really a very large group of those people or because those people are just very good at getting the attention of, uh, of the media. Um, And it might be that the people in Canada that are more resistant are, um, Either like a smaller group, or uh, or less um, less vocal and less um, less able to get to get that attention. I mean, my sense is that Canadians are generally more um, compliant and willing to accept restrictions on their government uh, um, or restrictions on their liberties placed by the government. Um, but I don't think that they're um, unquestioning and I don't think that they're apathetic. I mean, we, we definitely at the CCLA heard from many people who, you know, are really concerned about what's happening, who really um, feel that um, government is is overstepping, that they're using, you know, the pandemic as an opportunity to grab more power, um, that it's going to be hard to go back to a situation where um, governments don't have some of the powers that they have right now. So um, I do hear from a lot of people who who are concerned and who genuinely, you know, care about this. Um, I think it's it, it's partly maybe just the, the, the stereotype about Canadians being polite. Um, and I, I also think um, as critical as I am of, of what, you know, many of our governments have done, um, I think uh, we we just don't have the same just deeply polarized society as, you know, is prevailing in the States right now. And um, where I think uh, governments are, um, you know, are going to be seen by sort of half the population as being completely unreasonable and completely wrong and doing mm. the completely wrong thing. I think we have a, a much more 
kind of nuanced, uh, you know, approach. And um, I mean, in many sort of jurisdictions across the country, just regardless of the party that's in power, um, you see a lot of the same types of rules being being put in place. And um, and it's different in the United States, you know, the the, the partisan nature of, of their society at, and at this particular moment um, is, you know, is really heightened. And I think, you know, if I'm, I'm being um, frank, um, the fact that the president has, you know, made a number of statements that really kind of call into question whether there's anything significant happening with the virus certainly has not helped, um, you know, the, I think it's, it's not helped the reaction of some Americans to, to restrictions. Right. The, the climate of discussion ultimately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. And I like the way you put that as well, where you basically said, uh, you know, that, uh, even though there may be some political differences in Canada across the board, there's a lot of similar measures in place and people seem to agree at least on some threads. Um, I think that also in a charming way sometimes works in the reverse too, which is that even though something might happen either on the provincial or federal level of government, it seems like all Canadians can sometimes be together upset and disagree <laughs> with, with, the yeah. with the government itself. So that's kind of nice sometimes as you can go sometimes uh, border to border and everyone can be mad at the same federal <laughs> government. So that's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think even if you look like at right now, you know, at the, the debate that's happening in the states around the Supreme Court. I mean, we, um, you probably don't know who appointed any of our Supreme Court justices, whether they were liberal or conservative, or, you know, like um, it, it, there is not such a significant difference here mm-hmm. between between that and, and we've managed, I think, to, to very well kind of keep our highest court. Um, depoliticized and that is not the case in the United States. And I, and I agree. I think if we actually care about a, a separate judicial process and and the depoliticization of these areas, there's definitely a good compare and contrast to be had there. But that would take another hour. If you want to <laughs> yes. come back, we'll talk about that because I love that topic too. But I have to move us on, especially as our time winds down here too. I think I think a, one of the last notes here we can, we can fit in before our formal wrap up. And I think it actually ties in nicely to some of the things we were talking about before about Canadian culture and, and the way people look at things here. Um, in your interview with the Halifax Examiner, you did say people may be willing to have their rights suspended for a period of time, but when there is no clear path out of this, rights restrictions need to be scrutinized more closely and justified more clearly, end quote. So you then go on to conclude that emergencies can indeed be temporary. And as we've discussed at the beginning of the conversation, in many cases, emergency measures can be justified. But when they become the status quo is when we have huge problems. So in, in everything we discussed today, based on that quote there you said, and this, of course, based on everything we've uh, talked about in the first half too, is, is that one thing you'd like to leave people with uh, ultimately is is that um, we can only hear temporary measures, emergency so many times until we really have to start paying attention to what could be a new normal and then where there might be some red flags in that sort of area. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it's always good to be, um, it's always good to require governments to justify their actions, to use evidence to explain, you know, what they're doing and why they say it's reasonable. If it's if it's a measure that restricts, you know, a right that is is protected by our constitution and a right that we, you know, as human beings possess. Um, but you know, in this moment, I think, um, you know, because there is this this fear and um, and because we're facing really um, you know really difficult circumstances um, we do need governments to to do that job particularly well they need to be they need to first of all have the evidence and the um, you know the, the justification for the steps that they're taking but they also need to be really good at communicating it to people. Um, and, it, you know, in some cases, I think that that's um, maybe where some governments have have fallen short, um, you know, and and um, and I don't want to be overly critical because I recognize um, how challenging it must be to be someone who is responsible for the health and well-being of, you know, a province or a country or a city. Um, 
but I think that um, one of the ways that you instill confidence in your constituents is by um, being honest with them and, uh, you know, putting forward the evidence and, and speaking clearly about why you're taking the steps that you're taking and uh, inviting, um, you know, inviting questioning and inviting uh, opposing views because, um, you know, that often can sort of strengthen um, the argument that you're making by hearing Mm-hmm. I hearing from the people who who disagree. And, uh, and on that note, actually, just uh, I lied before. That wasn't the last point. One more smaller <laughs> point. Uh, how, how do you feel that the average person should inform themselves during these times? I mean, obviously, it's 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 just a simple case of time and interest. And that's, in certain cases, capability. If people aren't trained in that area to, you know, not everyone's going to start a, a legal research project for, for four hours of reading and going to court documents and, and things like that. But what, what, what can the average person do to, to inform themselves in this time other than going to the CCLA website, which we will put yeah. in the episode notes? Uh, what, what kind of sources of information do you think people should be paying attention to? I mean, me personally, I'm an optimist. I think if people are presented things in clear and concise ways, they they will understand issues farther than than most people may think. But uh, but as I said, uh, without going to the extreme of doing a four hour research project and on the other end, there's an extreme of looking at a headline and giving up. How how do you think people should should go about informing themselves in this this area of civil liberties during all this craziness? So, I mean, it's it's really hard. There's um, certainly a fair bit of misinformation floating around and um, particularly on social media, it's easy to um, to to get sort of sucked into um, to to sort of the discussion about things rather than the information, you know, that, yes. that's at the core. Um, yes. And so, I mean, I think people should, um, I, I think for the most part, I mean, if you, if you want to know what's happening um, with, with the virus in your community or you want to um, get, get the information about the virus, the, the first point should be the public health authorities. Um, that's where we should be, you know, looking to um i mean one of the challenges right now is that um you know not just to be knowledgeable about what's going on but to be knowledgeable about what your obligations are and what your um you know what what are the rules that you're supposed to follow some of them are changing you know very quickly and some of them are there's there's many layers of them so depending on where you live you know there may be rules put in place by your public health authority and then also rules put in place by your municipality and then your province might have other rules and the federal government layers on top so it's it's very difficult um and um you know while i i think a a regional approach is is the right way to go with this kind of public health threat i i recognize that it would be a lot easier if you know the whole country just had one set of of rules to follow um but that's not our situation so you know, I think you have to start by looking at, at sort of the, the local information and, um, and, and by choosing your news sources carefully, you know, um, choosing reliable sources, um, you know, not necessarily sort of just clicking on what's, what, what's coming through your feed, right. um, mm-hmm. your social media feeds, but proactively going out there and looking at, um, at the coverage to see, um, you know, what's happening sort of outside your bubble. And I, I don't mean your, your social, your social bubble. Bubble. Yeah. I mean your, yeah. your, uh, you know, your, your social media. So yeah, no, for sure. I think it's an excellent point. I think before people either strongly agree with something that a rule that's set or, or strongly disagree with it, maybe the first place to start is understanding the rules, at least at a high level. I think that's an excellent point. So, uh, Kara, we, we've talked about a lot. I think it's time for the formal wrap up. Let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. In each episode, we want to make sure that the guest has the last word and basically takes us out in that way. A lot of our discussion, you know, relied around, you know, to get in depth on our topic today, like in a lot of our discussion was really about about the how about maintaining civil liberties and, and some examples. But in terms of the spirit of our title, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on can we maintain civil liberties during a pandemic? So first of all, thank you for this discussion. It was um, really nice to be able to talk in this kind of longer format about these issues. But I, I think, I mean, I think the answer is yes. Um, and I, you know, I think we can pay attention to the rights that we have and we can um, ask our governments to justify the measures that they're taking. Um, and we can be, um, you know, kind to one another where we differ in our perspectives um, and recognize that um, right now people are, you know, just doing the best they can. Um, and uh, we need to give each other a little bit of uh 
slack, I think. Um, but we, when it comes to our governments, we do need to, to hold them accountable and recognize that, um, that this is a time when it would be easy to slip in to excessive, um, you know, power grabs by government or excessive regulation. Um, and uh, I think Canadians can and should be posing questions about the restrictions that are in place, about how long we can expect them to be in place, about whether they're working, um, you know, and about who's making decisions. That's another thing that we, we didn't get a chance to talk about. But, um, you know, how much how much power do we want to give, um, you know, a, an unelected um, medical officer of health? Um, how much power do we want to give an elected premier? And how much power do we want our elected parliamentary legislative bodies to have in making these decisions that are, you know, affecting our lives in very significant ways. I think that's an excellent place to end it off. So Kara's people, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.